I'm Stuart Sheldon. My name's Ron Rothberg. 30 years ago, I was on Wall Street. I was the youngest vice president at my fancy company, but that's not what I wanted to do. After spending nearly 25 years in media, I knew things were changing, both in the industry and inside me. Swan Dive shares the powerful stories of those who had the clarity and backbone to make a major life pivot to their vision. I took a Swan Dive. I have been an artist ever since, and it's the best choice I ever made. Getting closer to who you really are. That's Swan Dive. Tanya Silveratnam wrote her way out of the darkness as she told her intimate story of abuse. But that darkness has turned to light, and her new book, Assume Nothing, is making a difference. I believe that there's like an unbrainwashing that needs to happen of both men and women, and a transformation from this power over culture, which comes from a place of scarcity and encourages competition and division, to a true power culture where People recognize that they can rise together and be their best selves. Being your best self with the courage and conviction to speak truth to power. This is Swan Dive. From the Peacock and Park Studios in Jacksonville, Florida, and in Costa Rica at the Fancy Nasty Studios, it is another edition of Swan Dive with Ron Rothberg and Stu Sheldon. It is such a pleasure to come back to the microphones to see you, Stu. Hello. Ah. And you, my friend, always. Um, you know, today's been one of those really busy days, driving, driving, a lot of, uh, a lot of motion, um, interviews, meetings, et cetera. Um, one of those days where you feel both exhausted and alive at the same time. Yes. Um, and it's a uh, kind of emblematic of our guest today, who's uh, been very busy lately. Um, she has been uh, uh, promoting a new book, which is, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit. She and I met. Uh, through Four Freedoms. And uh, she is a powerhouse and someone that I aspire to be like in the sense of just doing a lot of things well. Tanya Silveratnam has many talents and wears many hats. She's a writer, an artist, and an Emmy-nominated and multiple Webby-winning producer with more than 25 years of experience in the arts and social justice. Born in Sri Lanka and raised in the States, she's a co-founder with the artist Laurie Anderson, and the producer, Laura Michelson, of the Federation, a coalition of artists, organizations, and allies committed to keeping cultural borders open and showing how art unites us. She's been an advisor and producer for Four Freedoms, which catalyzes public discourse and civic engagement through the arts. She worked on the 50-state initiative, for which I had a billboard. Uh, she has produced the Four Freedoms Congress, she has produced ranges of films, branded content, live events, large-scale convenings and exhibitions. Her films have played on HBO, PBS, Showtime, Vice, the Suntance Channel, and more. She's the author of numerous essays and two books, The Big Lie and Assume Nothing, a story of intimate violence, which has been covered extensively recently in Time Magazine, The New Yorker, and is currently creating profound conversations about violence against women and the next phase of the Me Too movement. Welcome to Swan Dive, Tanya. Thank you, Stu. That was a hefty introduction. <laughs> <laughs> That's the awkward listen to your bio part of the show. Uh, now we're going to go to the fun part. But wait, when um, you're listening to your bio, what do you hear? What, what rings most in your ears? I always tell people, skip the bio. Let's just get to the conversation. <laughs> yeah. As a fellow member of Four Freedoms and Wide Awakes, uh, I watched your beautiful 
conversation with Hank Willis Thomas last week. I watched your conversation with Carrie Mae Weems this week. And one thing is clear to me, yours is a highly creative, purpose-driven life. And here at Swan Dive, we're all about capturing the pivotal moments in meaningful lives. And any meaningful life, particularly for a creative person like yourself, is rich with dreams, dreams of what we can become and what we can achieve. My question to you is, what is your big dream? And tell me a small dream. My big dream is that we achieve a world that is fairer and safer for all people, uh, that we chip away at the patriarchy and the cycle of violence that the patriarchy normalizes. My small dream is because my book just came out, is that a lot of people buy it, pass it along, <laughs> and that it helps others spot, stop and prevent intimate partner violence in their own lives. Right on. Outstanding. I hope that both of those dreams come true. The second one is definitely going to come true. The first one, well, we're going to, we're pulling on the same oars. We, we, we got a ways to go, but we're, we're, we're doing it. But you did, you have said that uh, early on that you are getting uh, a lot of folks have been contacting you. So perhaps those little nuggets of dreams are coming true right now. I hope so. Uh, it's, you know, intimate partner violence is a crisis. It's a global crisis. And, uh, there just needs to be more education and public awareness from the time we are born in our schools. And there needs to be more support um, at a societal and governmental level um, to really address the crisis. Mm. Tani, you've done many, many things over the course of your life. You've even been a performer as well as a producer and a writer and a speaker, an organizer. What was your swan dive? My swan dive was writing this book uh, because it helped me kind of write my way out of the darkness, uh, which I found myself in after I had come forward against the former New York State Attorney General uh, in 2018. And I was inspired to write the book because I had so many people reaching out to me, sharing their own stories of intimate violence and I decided I would write this book for them and also for the millions of people that experience it and to take the reader along my journey from victim to survivor and thriver and hopefully help others find their light. Mm. You were writing this book, I guess, was it in the middle of the pandemic and having this whole experience of this shared vulnerability all at the same time. Was that a catalyst? Did that help or was that any way shaping the words as they came from you? Well, the pandemic uh, coincided with my writing the final words for the book. Um, I had gone from New York City to Portland, Oregon, where I live part-time uh, in the spring of 2020. And uh, I went there so that I could uh, revisit the book that I had already finished. And, and Portland is like my creative place. The trees inspire me and also the solitude. And it was much easier to be in solitude in Portland, Oregon than in New York City, where I live in a big apartment building with a lot of people. But the pandemic, um, with all its tragedies, for me on a personal level, in this solitude, I was just more attuned to my inner thoughts and also to the nature around me. So I ended up writing a, 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 a whole new chapter that wasn't even going to be in the book originally. 
And in that chapter, I was able to capture some of what I was experiencing during the pandemic. And uh, there's a lot of magic that happens in that last chapter, which mm. I won't give away too much of. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, um, some of the magic was sad, which was that I had more women reaching out to me who were victims of the former New York State Attorney General. Uh, the good magic was the um, the the birds that visited me while I was writing. Did that mm. was that kind of the healing that you got from as you say as you wrote out of the darkness? Did the birds come to help you in that moment? I mean, the universe might have sent them, but it was a coincidence. You know, I've had a place in Portland, Oregon, for almost seven years now. I had never had a bird build a nest on my deck before. Hmm. Mm. You know, in your in your talk last or earlier this week with Carrie Mae Weems, which is so heartwarming, you know, when friends can just hang it out there and connect like that, and then people can bear witness to that. It's it's particularly today, it's just very it's uplifting. So thanks for that. Ditto your conversation with Hank. Such a warm feeling for the rest of us to just sit in on that. But um, one of the things that you said really stuck with me. It said, you never know whose life you may be saving by speaking out. And boy, that was really the most gentle and poetic way of, of, of saying, you know, we need to speak truth to power. Another thing that you said, you talked about the difference between good fear and bad fear. Can you help us understand what good fear and bad fear is? Because in the in the swan dive, when people are considering that big pivot, fear is ever present. I had read Gavin De Becker's "The Gift of Fear" when I was preparing to come forward um, about my story of abuse, and that book was a game changer for me. And that's where I learned about the difference between good fear and bad fear. Good fear helps us tap into our intuition and protect ourselves. Um, and bad fear is that which prevents you from living your best life. And I recognized that the fear I felt about coming forward was eclipsed by knowing that I was doing the right thing. And so that was me relying on my good fear uh, to make that step. And I think it's a good life lesson for all of us, like how to distinguish between good fear and bad fear. And so much of what dominates our culture is bad fear. Mm. Yeah. And so another challenge is how do we chip away at the bad fear? Because that bad fear is what allows those in positions of power to separate us, to keep us divided, and to make us suspicious of each other. Mm. So would you say, would you define bad fear as fear that makes one doubt oneself? I mean, what, what, mm -hmm. what, what, what is sort of the principal element of bad fear? Bad fear prevents you from taking risks, from taking leaps, from curiosity, from exploration, it manifests in so many ways, and it's uh, unique to each person. And good fear gives you the first female New York Attorney General, of uh, Letitia James. Yeah. 
because well, that was an unexpected your- <laughs> outcome of, of my relying on my good fear. <laughs> yeah. But I think that one of the things that is remarkable for me as I learn more about you is that you're resolving your commit conviction now, like now, because all of this, the book tour and everything is happening now. I know it's a long journey to get to that place. Uh, what were some of the things that you did or some of the practices that you put in place to help you get that conviction to tell? On a, a kind of practical nuts and bolts level. So I, I'm, you know, I'm an introvert by nature. I um, am very comfortable spending long stretches of time by myself. So it was really sorting through my thoughts. I'm also very attentive to my dreams. My dreams, which I recount many of in the book, are like coherent narratives, and I feel they tell me things. So I I pay attention to my dreams uh, when I feel like they're telling me something. And also I meditate a lot. Hmm. And so when I meditate, I am able to mine my memories and... Uh, put them together in ways that I wouldn't otherwise because of the noise and chatter that's all around us. And I minimize my time on social media and I uh, keep myself safe by knowing my boundaries. And that's something that I'm navigating right now because there's uh, a lot of attention on the book. I couldn't have anticipated that the release of the book would coincide with the allegations against Governor Cuomo. And I also couldn't anticipate that it would coincide with the release of Alan V. Farrow, the limited run series about the Mia Farrow, Woody Allen case. Um, And with the stories of FKA Twigs and Evan Rachel Wood sharing their stories of intimate violence by uh, in committed relationships. So there's just been a lot that I've had to navigate and a lot of people reaching out. And um, I'm usually somebody who likes to respond to everyone, but just knowing that I can't right now has been kind of comforting for me. That storm is so big. uh, And I know it's just going to be gathering because what you said at the beginning, um, we have systemic problems in our society, our patriarchal society. Your conviction, your subconscious conviction that became conscious uh, has brought us to another one of those voices. You're on your path right now, though, for restorative justice, right? I mean, all of this is about restorative justice. We had a guest who was in prison for 25 years, Khalil Osiris, who dedicated the rest of his life to this notion of restorative justice. And a big component of that is um, this empathetic compassion. And as much as we talk about the storm that's brewing, um, I get more annoyed by the dismissive behavior of people that aren't willing to listen have you seen both sides of this and you telling your story? Well, in my case, yeah, I thought what I experienced was specific to me because it had been so customized to me, the abuse. But then, of course, I found out that I was part of a pattern. And because I believe in due process and I believe in, in investigations and establishing the veracity of the allegations and also the credibility of the accuser. I participated in a journalistic investigation, which was vetted by multiple lawyers. I participated in subsequent legal investigations and I wanted to support the process, even though it was uncomfortable to participate. So um, I have total clarity about 
what happened to me because it wasn't just my story. So many women shared it. Mm -hmm. I'm now aware of uh, nine women who experienced abuse by the person who abused me. And I'm sure that if there are nine, there are probably many, many more because a woman that I heard from after my book came out, who read my book, she had been abused by him 40 years ago. So this is spanning four decades at least. And those that would dismiss me, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I say, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinion, but um, the facts are clear. And because my abuser was a very powerful person with very powerful allies, there were some of the most powerful people in America who were trying to discredit me. And I know many of their names. And I just say, wow, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. And one day I might name them publicly. Yeah. Yeah. In your interview with uh, David Remnick at the New Yorker um, recently, you said, quote, I believe that if an abuser acknowledges the harm that they've committed and does the hard work to route out their abusive behavior, then we can give them a second chance. What does a second chance look like to you in the case of, in, in your case, for example, what would a second chance look like when you have such an acute series of, of crimes? Well, I believe that a lot of it is um, the conditioning to harm people, that many of these abusers are the products of that conditioning, that men are to dominate and women are to be silent. And so I believe that there's like an unbrainwashing that needs to happen of both men and women um, and a transformation from this power over culture, which comes from a place of scarcity and encourages competition and division to a true power culture where people recognize that they can rise together and be their best selves. So when I say that I believe in second chances, I believe that if somebody does the hard work to uh, understand the fractures within themselves that have resulted in their harmful behavior. Um, and it is a lot of hard work and they acknowledge the harm that they have inflicted, then I can give them a second chance. And I hope that society can too. But in most cases, the abusers don't do any of that. Mm -hmm. And there right. are many programs that uh, allow for um, people who've committed harm of various sorts, such as sex offenders and drug offenders, et cetera, to um, participate in programs that um, give them counseling and right. treatment and vocational um, training. But there's such a high attrition rate in many of those programs that these people have been ordered to participate in that there's no follow through. But in my book, I talk about how there have been some success stories when there have been um, necessary punitive measures for people who don't stick with their programs. I think that your, your high road mentality, your willingness um, and eagerness for fairness and restorative justice really lends a great deal of gravitas and power to your, to your entire um, MO here. And it's refreshing, and I think a lot more effective in this fight against the patriarchy. Um, you're not screaming. 
you're not hysterical, you're very measured, you've done your homework, and uh, and it makes for a very very compelling uh, you know at what you re- refer to as I think the next the next wave of Me Too is intimate violence and calling out the enablers. I mean, I think that you're sort of the tip of the spear now, and it it, it sounds like whether you want it or like it or want it or not, that, that, that's going to be a new role for you. Does that, does that seem like it's happening? Uh, well, I feel like it's not just my role. It's uh, a collective project. Clearly. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I do feel that we are at the cusp of the next wave of me too, which is about exposing intimate violence and committed relationships. It's a harder um, wave to, give momentum to because intimate violence in committed relationships is incredibly painful and difficult to talk about. There are typically only two witnesses, the victim and the abuser. The details, the micro details are embarrassing. Um, But I do feel that if more people share their stories, then we can take the stigma out of it because the stigma comes from secrecy. The reason I feel the next wave of Me Too is also about calling out the enablers is because most abusers do not get away with the abuse without enablers behind them. And sadly, many of those enablers are women. Uh, They're what I call the female patriarchs. And I think that they have to be called out in order for us to unpack and unravel the infrastructure that has facilitated a very harmful power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And, and it, you know, you, you stood up to power, you stood up to abuse. And the biggest monster of all, I think, is hypocrisy. Uh, because the Attorney General was, you know, trying Harvey Weinstein at the time. I think that is just an incredible um, angle for your whole story is this whole hypocrisy of it all, which is ingrained in our society. Tanya, you've achieved a great many things. You've done a lot of things in a lot of realms and you've had a lot of success. You went to Harvard and you know, you've you've worked with some of the top names in entertainment, made films, etc. What would you consider one of your great failures? Not learning how to sing. <laughs> well, now's your chance. What's your go-to karaoke tune? I tried singing 1999 in a virtual karaoke bar and it kind of fell flat. <laughs> it was very hard, but I always wanted to sing, you know, every morning when I wake up after I meditate, I put on um, Stevie Wonder or I put on one of the Joy to the Poles playlists, my favorite ones at the moment and always are uh, the ones by Marissa Tomei um, mm-hmm. and Maggie Rogers mm-hmm. Um you know, I listened to Stevie Wonder and Bill Withers. And also I recently worked on a series of uh, videos to celebrate the launch of PBS's The Black Church series hosted by um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. And I was able to uh, listen to a lot of gospel singers. So John Legend and Erica Campbell and Tasha Cobbs Leonard and Fred Hammond. And so now th- those have been added to my morning uh, repertoire hmm. of music hmm. that I listen to. And I just wish I had, you know, learned how to sing. <laughs> you were in conversation with Hank and Hank is someone that I just can't admire enough. He, he's such a doer and he's so talented and he's such a humble family loving gentleman. And in that conversation, he sort of, you know, intimated that he, you're, you're iconic for him. He looks up to you. Um, 
And that's so intriguing to me. And you are so many things. You're the sort of definitive polymath. My curiosity is, how do you identify yourself? Who, who do you, who are you? What is your identity? I don't really identify myself. I just kind of like stay in the moment and be present. Um, I, I would say that, you know, I am very fortunate and grateful. That's how I identify myself, like fortunate and grateful. I, I, I grateful because I've had so many wonderful people in my life. And some of them, I feel like we've been through many lives together and uh, people like Carrie Mae Weems and Hank Willis Thomas and Micheline Thomas and Catherine Gund and Tiffany Schlain. And there's just so many amazing people that I've been fortunate to collaborate with very closely. Um, Lucy Walker is another one I think of. And then really grateful for the friends who really keep me looking up. Yeah. You're, you're obviously just finished a book. A book is such a solitary endeavor. I suspect it took you a year or two to write it. And you are extremely um, seasoned in collaboration. Looking forward, is there any big collaboration in, in the mix that, are, that, that, that you're about to pivot into? Well, the book is being developed as a series by ABC Signature Disney Television with Joanna Coles, executive producing. So it is um, in active development right now and meeting with writers, which is very exciting. And I didn't intend for the book to be optioned and turned into a series, but I am um, very fortunate that that is happening because it means that the message will reach a larger audience. So that's, mm. that's keeping me busy. And also I am helping Carrie Mae Weems on her next big project, which is scheduled right now to happen in December at the Park Avenue Armory in, in New York. So those are the big ones. And then I uh, recently became the uh, senior advisor on gender justice narratives for the Pop Culture Collaborative and uh, ho- uh, intending to design and build a gender justice, justice narrative cohort um, later this year. So that's very exciting. Has the bright light that you're in right now, has that had any effect on you with all the interviews and all the press? I'm just taking it day by day, moment by mm. moment, because I um, just have to make myself available to um, to do the interviews, to write the pieces, uh, because I want to do whatever I can to support the book. And I'm uh, I have an amazing team with my agent Meg Thompson and my editor Lisa Sharkey and the whole team at Harper. Leslie and Maddie and Becca. And so I, I do have a lot of support, but uh, I, I'm also looking forward to when I can take a break, although it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Hmm. What do you do for fun? I love to dance all night. Dancing is my favorite thing to do. And I love taking walks with friends and having one-on-one dinners. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, Tanya, uh, I, I don't think you and I have ever spoken before, but I have been the beneficiary of your extremely hard work and dedication and the ethos that exudes from the work that you do. And for that, I want to simply say thank you. Uh, I also want to thank you for having the courage to speak truth to power. That's the paradigmatic shift that we're in right now. And uh, you're doing it at the highest decibel and at the highest level. And for that, I want to say thank you. 
And lastly, I want to say thank you for joining us on Swan Dive. We really appreciate you sharing your truth. Oh, thank you so much. I don't even know how to respond to all this hyperbole, but thank you. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Swan Dive. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Also, we are building a new season of Swan Dive. So if you or you know someone who has experienced a swan dive in their life, please hit us up and contact us through our website, www.swandive.us.